Design it, craft it, smith it, stitch it, tool it, and pick it. We do it all. This is Bespokelahoma. Musical intro by Allie Harder and Grace by Shop out of Oklahoma City. <laughs> Welcome to the Bespoke Oklahoma podcast. Casting, podcasting live out of Traditions Leather Craft at 7500 West Reno Suite 200. Casey's got some sweet deals this week on cowhide rugs, 145 per cowhide for a select group of cowhides. Uh, we've got some more subdued blindle, brindles, some Herefords. Uh, so feel free to contact Casey through the Facebook page or via his phone number if you're interested in either of those. As we said on the podcast last week, Casey is also now a dealer of leather sewing machine, Cobra leather sewing machines. He said he's got two class 26s coming in. So be sure that if you're interested in those, get your name on the roster, snatch one of those up quick. He said he'll even have a bell skyver coming in soon. Um, that is all we've got as far as deals. We do have a couple classes coming up. Dustin, this weekend at Traditions, is teaching a DOP shaving kit type bag class. And then next weekend, our own Tony Mullins is giving a wristlet clutch bag class uh, again any of the details of, for those would be on traditions leathercraft llc facebook page dustin who do we have on the podcast today well also i was going to say that um also up here at traditions i'm selling a juki ddl 5530 sewing machine for six hundred dollars and it comes with a bunch of stuff so if you need it, come buy it before Casey decides to buy it. If I had any more room in my house, it would already be on its way here. But <laughs> I, I'm afraid I'd have to like get rid of a couch at this point, which probably wouldn't work out well. So. All right. So this week we have my friend Marnie Vinge, and she is an author and a podcast host. And I forgot all of your other. Uh, just basically a novelist. Uh podcaster storyteller kind of that <laughs> all that goes together I guess so how are you doing today Mike? I'm doing really good I am wide awake for it being early to me in the morning <laughs> so <laughs> so what kind of books do you write so I write uh primarily like horror occult thrillers um I write some straight up thrillers. I wrote a lot of that in the past, but I'm kind of in the process of rebranding to just occult thrillers and just horror. So kind of like, um, I don't know if either of you are familiar with like Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child who wrote like Relic and the Pendergast series. And it's all kind of like, he's an FBI agent, but the cases kind of border on the paranormal. So the stuff I write, like one of the series that I write is like the X-Files kind of. It's like the X-Files meets Supernatural, basically. Mm. Um, and then I write horror also. So, um, yeah, that's that's what I write. What got you into writing? In so, um, so when I was really little, I my mom read to me from the time that I was a baby. And I just loved books. Like, even before I could uh, understand the words on the page, I would just sit and pull all the books out of my bookshelf and just flip through all of them, look at the, all the pages, 
and stuff. And I started reading, I, I don't think it was really that early, but by the time I was about seven, I had decided that I wanted to tell stories. So I actually came across in the garage the other night, a story that I wrote when I was like seven to nine years old, and it was called Dogula, a Dracula Dogula. story <laughs> twist. And it was about a dog that was a vampire. <laughs> so I guess it goes all the way back to that. And um, I don't know. I just, I've always loved stories. I've always loved spooky stuff. And so it all just kind of like, I was like, I want to tell these stories of like, like goosebumps and stuff like that, mm. that scare me. And um, of course, scary stories to tell in the dark was a huge formative thing for me, which I think for a lot of people in our generation that like, <laughs> oh, yeah, stuff, that, that was definitely a big one. But yeah, I mean, um, it started when I was pretty young. And then when I got into like, junior high, I kind of I became a big Harry Potter fan. Mm -hmm. And then I got into writing fan fiction. So I was writing Lord of the Rings fan fiction and Harry Potter fan fiction. By the way, I totally shipped Harry and Hermione. I was not a Ron Hermione. I was like, <laughs> Harry, Hermione, that's all my fan fiction. So come across it. You'll know. <laughs> not really. But there's so much of it. Um, and then that was kind of when I got some original ideas for the mm -hmm. first time was like after I did that. And then I went to college for writing. And that was, it was good in that it taught me how to, to take really harsh criticism mm -hmm. but other than that I learned nothing about how to make a living as a writer all of that <laughs> after college so um but yeah I mean I guess I've been doing it for as long as I can really remember I've just always wanted to be a writer so and you're doing it for a living now right yes mm -hmm. that's awesome yeah. yeah it's pretty cool it's it's really really cool to like think what little Marnie would think like she'd be <laughs> like oh my gosh this is my dream like this is so cool what was your first book that you got published um, the first book that I published, so um, I decided to go the indie route, which is self-publishing. So, like, I publish all of my own stuff. And when I was in college, I had a professor that told us straight up, this was, like, back in probably 2010, 2012. He was like, if you self-publish, it's suicide. Like, your career is over. You will never get a book deal. You will never go anywhere. And at that time, that was, for the most part, pretty true. Um, because self-publishing was this new frontier and... It's, it gets confused with vanity publishing, which is where someone pays to have their stuff published, but it's not the same thing. Um, and anyway, I was like terrified of that. I was like, I don't want that. I'm going to go the traditional route. And so I wrote my first full-length novel in 2017. And I went to New York City and uh, uh, pitched some agents, about seven or eight agents, and seven of them agreed to read it. And I got really, really good feedback on it, but the market was saturated. Um so my first novel that I decided to publish, gosh, which one was that? I'm like drawing a blank. Okay. Um, I think it was The Way It Ends, which was a thriller that I wrote immediately after that first novel. Um, and it's set here in Oklahoma. I have since pulled it down because I'm doing like a big rebranding. But I think that was the first novel that I had published. And it was basically about a college professor turned new age self-help guru slash cult leader. <laughs> and he's got all these people out of the panhandle and something goes wrong somebody gets shot and so the fbi comes in and is like look dude like this is a cult like you can't can't be doing this kind of very inspired by uh, david crash and all that so mm -hmm. yeah but that was the first and the first first story i published was a vampire story called jaws that was about a club underground in oklahoma city so because of the tunnels yes right? yeah it was set in the tunnels set in the tunnels yep Melissa, did you know that there's tunnels under Oklahoma City? 
I did not know that. That's why I was about to ask. Are these like, were they like speakeasy tunnels or? Well, um, so I don't know exactly what, they weren't the same tunnels that like Jeff Provine talks about, like that had the Chinese underground and stuff like that. But these tunnels, the ones that I set it in are like, they connect all the big buildings downtown. And back in the eighties, they had a lot of like bars down there. And I know this because my mom and dad used to go like, cause they both worked downtown and then they'd meet in the tunnels and have like a drink at happy hour and go home. Um, so I was like, what better place to set a vampire bar than down in the tunnels where it's kind of hidden. But yeah. So, and you can still go down there. Yeah. I've, uh, me and my wife have been down there. It's been a few years, mm-hmm. but we went down one and, I realize I am kind of claustrophobic. Yeah. Like, I was able to... Are walk. they tight? No, they're, like, big hallways. Mm-hmm. They're just okay. all the buildings. Yeah, no windows. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And I'm sure you can hear the traffic up above. I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember that either. No. But they, they're really cool because they have, like, Oklahoma history photographs, like, lining the walls. There's a bunch of stuff about, like, the oil history mm. of Oklahoma and all kinds of stuff. And they have really pretty neon lights that run like each different (laughs) so they're different colors but and i i don't remember exactly but your book that you were talking about uh about the cult Mm -hmm. up in the panhandle wasn't that based off the actual cult so that was actually the thing that inspired that um so i don't know if either of you remember when this happened but there was this book called the secret that came out like 10 maybe 15 years ago and it was like about self-help and how you could get anything you want by manifesting it that sort of thing and there was this guy who was very famous because he was like part of that whole group of people that really believed in that and I'm trying to think of his name but I can't remember it anyway he ran a self-help group and he would take people out in the desert and basically like have them do like vision quests and stuff like that and he had this um what are those called? Like a the hut that's very hot. I'm drawing a blank oh, on the name right now. A ute. A ute. Well, I don't, I don't. I don't think it was called that. Sweat, sweat lodge. lodge. Sweat lodge. Yes. Okay. Sweat so lodge. We had a sweat lodge on his property, and there was one time that he was having a retreat there, and either two or three people were telling him, "We need to get out of here. We're way too hot. We're way too hot. We're way too hot." And he was like, "No, you need to stay. You need to push through it and like become enlightened or whatever." Oh, I have heard about this yes. part of and it. Yeah, two or three people died. Oof. And yeah. he went to prison. And he came out of prison. And I watched the documentary about it. He came out of prison. He still does not think he did anything wrong. Like, he does <laughs> not think he did anything wrong. And he was on, like, Oprah. He was a millionaire. Like, he, his life savings got wiped out. Like, he's basically nobody now. But that was kind of a big inspiration for that story was, like, just that hubris of I know better. And, you know, like that fascinates me about cult leaders and like how that works and everything. And so that was a big inspiration for that. So, so how many books do you have published right now? Right now I have them all taken down except for this one. I brought this one. This is the one that I just published with three friends of mine and it is a supernatural anthology called the reunion. Um, I published it with Colette Carmen, Marissa Mosey, Catherine Trotter and myself. And it's, um, four tales based off of urban legends mine is called the body snatchers and it's basically 
the goriest thing I've ever written in horror. Like it's <laughs> it's pretty gory, and I'm very proud of it. Like I I feel like I did a good job because somebody messaged me and said, "Okay, so I read that, and I'm never gonna eat steak again." So <laughs> I was like, "Okay, I think I did my job on that one." But um, I pulled everything else down because I'm getting ready to do like a big rebranding. Um, but yeah, so that is the only one that's out there right now. But I did just finish the writing of my eighth novel, so. Awesome. Yeah. And you don't go under a, a uh, what is it called? A pen name. A pen name? No, I do not. I publish everything under my real name. So, which is probably. And are you just... still self-published? Yes. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Well, and that's, I find that absolutely fascinating because the music industry, you know, when we talked to Allie a couple of times, she had said the same thing about the music industry as a number of years ago, self-releasing was kind of, I don't know, kind of a joke, I guess. Yes. Whereas yeah. now. And apparently in the writing world, too, which I mean, just like, thank God for the modern marvels of like the Internet and resources and things that that you can actually do these things on your own. Uh, I just think that's super, super cool to be that kind of like self-made. Thank you. I I think it is. I think it's really cool, too. And I, I have noticed that with my friends who are in music, that it's kind of almost all creative fields are kind of trending that way where like podcasting, you don't have to like the podcast I do is independent Mm -hmm. and you don't have to have like a big brand behind you or anything to gain a following. Um, And I think the internet has really revolutionized that and made right now, probably the best time in history to be trying to make a living as an artist. Mm -hmm. Now what's uh, like, what goes into publishing publishing oh gosh okay (laughs) what's the difference between doing it yourself and And going traditional okay okay so first I'll tell you the difference years ago and then I'll tell you the difference now (laughs) and you'll kind of understand like why you would want to go self-publish now entirely but back in the day so you would submit your book like you'd write a book you'd edit it you'd get it all ready to go and you would submit it to a literary agent Mm -hmm. And that literary agent would look at your query letter, which is just a letter with like the synopsis, and they would make a decision right then whether they wanted to read the thing or not. Mm-hmm. If they say yes, they make a full request, which is very, very rare. You'd have to do like hundreds of submissions and, you know, get your full request and stuff. And um, they would read it and they would tell you yes or no. Mostly they'll tell you no. But um, and sometimes you'll get good feedback out of that. But anyway, that is how you get a literary agent. And then once you get a literary agent, you have to get a book deal. Mm -hmm. So the literary agent is just going to submit that book on your behalf to the publishers and the editors and stuff. And so then once you do that, you get like a book deal. You get like an advance. Say you get an advance of $50,000. Well, the deal with that is that $50,000, you get that money, but you have to earn that out before you ever see another penny of the money from your books. So you basically have to sell enough books that equals $50,000 before you ever see any more. And most people never earn out their advance. And the thing about that is they can make a decision based on that, whether or not they want to publish your next book. Like, are you going to earn out the advance or not? And anyway, so that was kind of like the way it was 2010, 2012. And there were, I think there were, I think that it was still the big five or the big seven then, which were the publishing houses. Now there are three. So it has gone down so much. Like, and there have been so many mergers and things. Um, So anyway, then back then self-publishing, it was kind of like nobody really knew what they were doing. Nobody had professional covers. Everybody was doing their covers in like Microsoft Paint. You know, (laughs) people didn't know what they were doing because writers are not graphic designers. And, you know, it's, it's all these steps and stuff. 
and now, well, and I'm sure it's hard to to be taken seriously if you don't, I guess, kind of fit what they're yes. looking for. Yes. So, so you'd kind of need to to figure out a way to get that polished look. I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. And now, so that was back in the day when the publishing houses had a lot of money and they would promote your book for you. They would do all the marketing. They would spend the money to like put your book out there and stuff. Fast forward to today, they don't have that much money. So you get a book deal and you might get maybe like $25,000 or $30, $25,000 or $30,000, $30. <laughs> feels like that, but um, you might get that much. And then they're going to say to you, now you're on your own. You better earn that advance out. You've got to market it yourself. You've got to do your social media. You've got to do your book tour. You've got to do this, that, and the other. So you're looking at that, or you can self-publish, which has become something that is taken way seriously now. And with self-publishing, you get a huge percent of your royalties right out of the gate, like 70%. With traditional publishing, even though you get that $30,000, $25,000, your royalties like on a hardback book, a hardback that costs like $27.99, they still have to pay themselves. They have to pay the graphic designer. They have to pay the formatter. They have to pay all the people who went into making that book. And so your royalties on that book are like two bucks or something. Like oh. it's, it's very, very small. And anyway, then for self-publishing, you get a whole bunch more of the royalties like up front, like with each book you sell, obviously you don't get an advance, but it has become this whole industry because people have realized that I can make more money long-term and be more self-sustaining going this way and I can build a following and social media has provided for that. Like it's made it where you can reach more people and stuff like that. And you don't really need the traditional publishing houses. And now there are graphic designers who used to work for the traditional publishing houses that contract with self-publishers. So you can get these custom covers that look just as good as what you walk into Barnes and Noble and see. And so it's become very, it's shifting. Like it, it was really slow at first, and now it's like gathering so much momentum that it's kind of like, I think that is the direction the future is going. Mm-hmm. So really interesting coming from college, them saying that suicide to now knowing of people who make obscene amounts of money self-publishing. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's this guy that's kind of like a hero in the industry and he's a British guy. His name is Mark Dawson. And he, I mean, I don't even know how many millions of dollars he makes a year, but he is doing very well for himself. <laughs> like, he is doing very well for himself. So, for, uh, oh, sorry, had a brain fart. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> Did you have a question, Melissa? Yeah, so uh, so the self-publishing, like I said, I just find absolutely fascinating. So do you have, because I know that on traditionally published books, I will admit, College kind of ruined me on reading for a while, so I have not done a lot of reading of new type novels. But um, so when you self-publish, does it? What does it say in the in the details as far as published? Does it say that it's self-published? Kind of how do you so differentiate that within the wording? So like on the reunion, our ISBN. If you pull up our ISBN, it says that it was published by. Let me see if it's in the front of the book. Uh, should be, yeah. It's published by, um, or it may not be in here, it may just be the copyright, but it is published, yeah, by Ma Seesaw Creative Inc., which is um, my friend Marissa's media company. Mm-hmm. So basically, like on my next book, it will be my company name that is the publisher. 
So very or you cool. Can, you okay. can do it also where your name is the publisher, like it's just published by Marnie Venge or whatever. But people do the LLC number one to protect themselves. Number two, because it looks more professional. Like right. it just it's a publisher name. So yeah. Right. Yeah, that was kind of my curiosity. So is it more I mean, I would think that it would be based on what you said as far as royalties go. So is it more economical as the writer to kind of contract this graphic designer and and this printer and and Um, so when you're first starting out the most economical thing is to bootstrap the whole thing yourself so like you're making your own covers you're uh doing your own editing you're doing your own book formatting you're basically doing every single thing that needs to happen for that book to get on a bookshelf and it's a lot of work and then like you get to a point where you can start paying people to do those things And it's like, it just gets better because it's like, once you're making enough money to pay for a cover, the cover looks better, which brings in more readers. So then you're making a little more money to pay for a a professional editor, which makes the book read better, which brings in more readers. So it's kind of like, as you go, it snowballs kind of a thing. But yeah, like in the beginning, I was just making my own covers, like the cover for Jaws, I did the photo shoot for it. And it was like uh, on a red background and it was a little set of fake vampire teeth with blood on them. And that was (laughs) it. Like I was, I mean, that was like the cover for that book. And, um, but yeah, the one I'm getting ready to publish probably at the first of the year will be my first professional cover for something that I've done by myself. And like this one is a professional cover. We got that one from a girl um, with a really big company who does um, book covers, but yeah. So it makes a difference. I really think that the professional covers are worth it. But if you're just getting started, just getting started, there's nothing wrong with doing your own covers. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of resources for how to make covers that sell, even if they aren't like top of the line graphic designer kind of covers. Now, when you go to get a professional cover made from the graphic designer, do you just kind of tell them what you want? Mm -hmm. They just throw something together. Yeah, basically, the biggest thing you want to tell them is what genre you're writing in and Mm -hmm. like what the tone is, because... um, as long as the cover matches the genre, you are, you're, you're pretty good. Like that, it doesn't have to be exactly like a scene from the book or anything like that. But like this one is kind of literary horror type uh, anthology type cover. So that's what we chose for that one. But like you, for instance, if you were writing a romantic suspense book you wouldn't want to get a thriller cover for it because that will draw in the thriller audience and they're going to be really mad when they find out it's romantic <laughs> suspense. and you know because that's not what they signed up for so they're like well this isn't thriller this is romantic suspense I don't want to read this and then you get one star reviews and so that that's never good <laughs> now um oh ever all the other authors that are in this book, they're all Oklahoma yes, authors. Yes, right? they are all local. Yes, which is really cool. I, I, I know they are. Yeah. I've, you know, I've yeah, yeah, yeah. Show and everybody, yeah. Mm-hmm. For everybody else. Right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mention that. They are all local Oklahoma authors um, and they all have stuff published. So, yeah, that's it's pretty cool. And one of the things that I told them that I thought was so cool about this was not many authors during their lifetime will ever be able to say that they put together a story collection with their best friends. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool that we can say that and like, look back on that and be proud of it. So, yeah. So is that kind of what your podcast is too then? Yes, it is. My podcast is definitely spooky stuff. Like it is (laughs) like, it's uh, anything related to Oklahoma that is dark history or, 
cryptids or ghosts or aliens or anything kind of out there that is Oklahoma related. So lots of big Very too. cool. <laughs> that helped. Good, good. <laughs> and I was actually on. Yes, twice. Three times. Three times. Were you Three talking about Bigfoot? Yes. Little Bigfoot. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, I told the, the ghost, the little yeah. ghost story. Yes. Yeah. That we did like two episodes ago. Yeah. Actually, I don't know if I've told you oh, gosh. that there's an update on that. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, last year, my older cousin mm-hmm. came up from Texas and I was mm-hmm. telling him about it. And he was like, you mean that little boy we saw when we were younger? Like, what are you talking about? And I guess in the same house, mm-hmm. me and him were playing as kids in the back bedroom mm-hmm. and the little boy walked into the room and disappeared. Oh and he said, uh, who, who who was that? And I guess I was like, this is a little boy that comes sometimes. Yeah. It freaked him out. And like a couple of days later, saw the little boy peeking around the tree outside. I just got chills. And I don't, oh my I don't remember that. But I remember wow. seeing that. Yeah. Uh, that would have been 2017. Yeah. yeah. But I don't remember those. So Wow. Oh, that is like, <laughs> that is, oh, I just got chills. That's, that's a good one. You'll have to come back and tell that. Oh, my gosh. So, all right. So, how many, I forgot if I asked, how many books do you have published? Um, this is the only one right now, but I have written eight novels and a host of short stories. And I am I have like a top secret uh, project that I'm getting ready to publish at the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. The one that I was talking about is my first professional cover. And I'm so excited when I get to start talking about that. So that's going to be great. So your others aren't? published not right now they oh, were they were i pulled them down, them down. yeah because i'm doing like the rebranding and stuff they were published a lot of people have copies of them but now those are collector's editions so <laughs> yeah <laughs> do you have a favorite like is out of uh, all the ones you've done yes so probably my favorite okay so i've got a couple i wrote a romance in 2019 that took me two weeks to write because i was just like on fire writing like 10,000 words a day like I was so into the story and it's called Gunshy and I'm actually probably going to republish that um it got really good reviews like some stranger comp like reviewed it and was like this is the best book I read all year like you know it was it was such a fun book to write and I do enjoy writing romance so I'm kind of toying with the idea of doing some more but that and then the first Blair Graves book have been my favorite and the reason that I pulled down the first Blair Graves book is because I actually just did an entire rewrite of it because I wanted to, I wanted it, to, I think I published it too soon and I wanted it to be more in depth, like the characters have better like depth to, the, depth to them and depth to the overall story arc and get kind of that all in order. So I think that anybody, I'm going to do a special thing where I'm going to offer like a free copy to anybody who downloaded it before and be able to give that to them. But I'm so excited with the way it turned out. That was the one I finished just a couple weeks ago. Okay. So, and I'm already about 15,000 into the second one. Hmm. So what, what's the fastest you've written a book and what's the longest it's taken? Okay. Fast, uh, <clears throat> longest ever was my first novel. It took me six months. So that was, that was a huge deal for me to complete that novel because up to that point, I had tried my hand at like long form fiction, but I'd never been able to finish anything. I started probably like 50 novels and gotten like a little bit of the way in or gotten close to the end and just couldn't finish. And so finally I was like, 
I'm going to finish a novel, like whether it kills me or not, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to do this. And so like, there were days when I was writing that novel that I would just sit down at my computer and I would stare at the cursor and I'd write one sentence and that would be it. That would be all I could do that day. And then there were days where it was just like thousands of words would come. And finally, when I finished that one, it was such a huge thing for me because throughout my life, I, I have struggled with like finishing things like gymnastics. I quit when I was <laughs> like 14 midway through the season and that like really messed with my head. And then college, I had dropped out and, you know, all this stuff. I still have dreams that I am not done with high school. Like, I will still have dreams that somehow someone somewhere has found out that I am not really a high school graduate and I'm going to have to go back at 34. So I have like a big hang up about this. Anyway, so I finished that novel and I went to New York City. I pitched it. It was such a turning point in my life because after that, I went back to college. I finished my degree and I started the podcast and I saw it through and like it just it was a huge huge thing for me um that was the longest one ever took me the shortest one ever took me was gunshy which took two weeks so and they were about the same length. so i cannot even fathom writing a novel in two weeks that is impressive <laughs> thank you <laughs> it's i really feel like it it's like any other skill the more you practice it the easier it gets and once you get into a story that you're just like really vibing with and you're like, Oh, I love the way this is going. I love the characters. Um, it's easy to sit at the computer for eight to 10 hours a day and just like keep writing. Like it's, it's easy. And then there are some days where you sit down and you're like, if I have to stare at this for one more second, I'm going to throw this out the window like I'm, <laughs> and I'm never going to write another word. Like um, there, there have been days like that on plenty of other books where I just like write a paragraph or something and I'm like I can't look at it today like it's not it's just not happening today but yeah well and there's stuff like that within leather work too because there are sometimes you you figure out a design and you just knock it out and then I actually just sold a purse that I made in 2017 mm -hmm. But I couldn't figure out what kind of handles I wanted to put on it. So I like just put handles on it a couple months ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's been sitting partially finished. But you know, like you said, you kinda you kinda get that spark and and figure out what you want it to look like and it and it just goes. So Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly exactly. Yeah. Now some of your stories, I haven't re actually read any of your books yet. Okay. But like uh I've heard other authors say like they'll get attached to a certain character in their yeah. book and like at the beginning of the, their idea was they're going to kill them off yeah. at some point. Has it been hard to like get to that, get to that point and like you try to figure ways not to kill, kill off that character? Okay. So in the Blair Drake series, I already know that there is one character that is for sure going to die. Mm -hmm. And I have already been doing the mental gymnastics of <laughs> how could I not kill this person? But I know that I have to yeah. for the story, you know, and I have another series that I'm working on that um, is a little bit different. It's more uh, for not a younger audience, but the characters are a little bit younger, like 17, 18, 19. And in the Blair Graves books, the characters are like in their 30s and 40s. Um, and I know there's a character in that other series that I am already like in love with attached to that is going to die. And I know it's going to be like the saddest thing ever, but I know <laughs> that they have to die. Um, 
So yeah, I, I do think about that and it's hard. Like, I think you do get attached to them, especially like, it sounds so like hokey, but you spend so much time in your head with these mm-hmm. characters, like figuring out their story and like, and every character you write is a part of yourself. Right. And so it's like, you know, you get attached to them. They're, mm-hmm. you know, like, I, I am not one of those writers though, that it like will tell you that my characters talk to me or that they write the story themselves or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> but um but i know there are people who like that they get that attached to them so but yeah i'm I'm already bummed about the characters that i know i'm gonna have to kill off i'm like man i was starting to like you like (laughs) yeah did did you say you're writing multiple series at once i'm not okay so i wrote the first book in this other series a couple years ago just as like a dry run to see if i like to see what would happen with it. And I wrote the first novel and I'm going to completely revise it because it's not what I want it to be now. But, um, I am always working on multiple things at once. Like I'm always kind of like, I have like a main novel that I'm working on and then I have short stories that I'm working on at the same time because I need, I am very highly like reward motivated and I need that low hanging fruit to be able to grab, to like keep me going every day. So like, it's really important for me to be able to like once every week or two finish a short story so that I still feel like, Hey, I can do this instead of looking down the barrel of 80,000 words and thinking I'm not going to be done with this for two months and this is going to be rough, you know, like, so I, I'm always kind of working on a couple of things at once and I try to focus the majority of my energy on one big project. So I'm not working on two novels at once, but I am plotting on another novel while I'm writing one, if okay. that makes sense. Like, okay, so of, it's not like right. write a little bit on this book. And no, then, yeah. Okay. It's more like write on this one, then write a little bit on the short stories and then like kind of casually plot like mm. things for the other book or write character profiles or write like jot down scenes or something like that so right. yeah. when you first said that earlier i was thinking i'll get so confused yeah one book oh yeah it's so, it's so weird like it's such a i don't even know like it, it it's so weird because i was actually talking to um i think i heard this on a podcast actually a, a writing business podcast and we were talking about how writers often surround themselves with other writers and we kind of forget how strange what we do is mm-hmm. like we kind of forget like it's probably the same with leatherworking like you get around all these other people who do it and you forget how special it is yeah like you're just like this is just what i do like yeah. this is you know this is normal everyday life to me and i think that that happens with writing so like i'm like yeah i can keep them straight like yeah i, I know what i know that character i know that character you know like and so it's uh so it's interesting yeah <laughs> so what would you say to an up-and-coming or somebody that wants to be a writer and doesn't know like exactly where to start like okay. what would be some advice you would give an up-and-comer read a lot and write a lot um and also like okay so i think reading is probably the most important place to start and just start writing like the earlier you start writing the better you'll get as time goes on it's like with anything like um and don't be hung up and change your focus give yourself permission to write complete crap like just give yourself permission to write anything and um enjoy it and my other piece of advice would be study craft like read books about the craft of writing because that is really important more than anything else how well you write will sell your next book um that being said i do not think you need to go to college for it so that was going to be my question because 
That's, uh, I, I noticed that you had said that you didn't feel like you learned much about actually being a successful published writer from college. Yeah. So, because, you know, that's kind of the story these days with everything. It's, oh, you've got to go to college. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not your experience. You don't think that. I do not think, I, I think I did learn valuable things about craft in college. Yeah, what you would you get from it? Yeah, and I would encourage people to pursue that part of it, but I do not think that you need to spend that money to be a successful commercial writer because so many, unless you find a program that is geared toward commercial success, then I'd say that would probably be worth it. Go for it. Like, that would be great. Um, and I think that OU's program is getting more that way, but UCOs I would not recommend just because when I was there, and it might be different now, so... UCO was very much focused on making you a literary writer, which basically means you'll never be able to pay your bills. So <laughs> like you write beautifully, but you're not going to write anything that sells. Like that's basically what is happening, what was happening there when I was a student. And that was where the professor told me self-publishing is suicide and we can see how well that aged. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, I would say you don't need to go to college. You need to study craft. You need to join writing groups. You need to let other people read your work and tear it apart. You need to have a thick skin and you can learn all of those things. But I would say the most important thing is to start right now with what you have. Hmm. So. Melissa, do you have any more uh, questions about uh, writing books and being an author? Because I'm about to switch it to podcast. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was thinking was podcast. I This is the first like podcaster that we've had on the podcast so oh, that really? was okay yeah yeah well okay, and I, yeah, I did a podcast during the rona and so i have been on like the podcast jam here for the last couple of years so i definitely want to hear more about the podcast okay so what is your the name of your podcast the name of my podcast is irioki and it is basically the tagline of the darker side of the state so it's just like um Horror, true crime, dark history, um, hauntings, cryptids, just anything like that is a little offbeat that, you know, that we enjoy as eerie Okies. So <laughs> what, what the, you have a lot of good material from Oklahoma, too, I'm oh my sure. Gosh, yes. <laughs> it's crazy. What, what made you want to start a podcast? Um, so the reason that I was starting the podcast to begin with was I knew that I needed a platform for my writing because that's a big thing in self-publishing is like, you need a way for people to just be aware that you exist kind of a thing. Um, which is, I'm, you know, it's like with any business, you have to advertise, you have to like show people, Hey, I'm here, I'm selling things. Mm. So I hadn't published anything when I started the podcast and I, it was really crazy because I really expected maybe like my family to listen to it and like a couple of my friends who felt sorry for me or something <laughs> like that, you know, like that's what I was expecting. I was like, okay, like this is who's going to listen, you know, and the first week that the podcast was out, I think it was like 33 people listened and it just took off and I, I would stare at the number on the screen and I would get freaked out because I would just be like, <laughs> that's a lot of people that's making me nervous. Like that's like, that's, you know, I can't think about that. I can't think about who's listening because that, you know, it's freaking me out. But um, I, I really think that it was just a niche that needed to be filled. And um, I was there at the right time with mm -hmm. the right content, with the right voice. And um, it's been a wild ride. Yeah. So 
and you've actually caught an EVP. Yes. On one of your episodes. Yes, yes. That's a funny story. Okay. B- before, mm-hmm. uh, will you explain what an EVP yes. is? Yes. Okay. So EVP. Mm-hmm. I often forget that I am not amongst all of the sweet folk who know <laughs> what the EVPs are. So EVP stands for, um, I believe it's electronic voice phenomena. Mm-hmm. And it is this idea that on recorders of pretty much any kind, you can sometimes catch voices that are not audible to the naked ear, I guess is the way that you would put it. Um, so I was at, and a lot of ghost hunting shows do that. Like they, they get the digital recorder out and like Zach Bagans will yell at ghosts to try to make them come up on the EVP. And, you know, like <laughs> the other shows, they're not quite so aggressive, like, <laughs> he's like really yeah. aggressive, but I still enjoy him. Um, so anyway, I was at the Stone Lion Inn, which for those of you listening who don't know, it is a bed and breakfast in, in Guthrie, and it is like 100 years old. There have only been three owners throughout the history of the place. It used to be a funeral home, um, and it is very, 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 very haunted um, to the point that national television shows have covered mm-hmm. the place. And anyway, I got an interview with Becky Luther, who is the owner of the Stone Lion Inn. And I went out there and, oh my gosh, it's gorgeous. It is gorgeous. And it was kind of funny because I took my roadcaster and the roadcaster has like the three prong, you know, it's got to be plugged into an outlet. So that house is a hundred years old. So mm-hmm. all those outlets in that house are like the two prong, you know, we finally found <laughs> No ground. One. Yeah. We finally found one. And I was like, oh my God, I was about to have a panic attack because I thought <laughs> I came all the way out here and I'm going to have to tell this lady that I messed up. And like, you know, I'm like, I'm freaking out. And so we finally find one. Anyway, we do the interview. We just sit there kind of in the old funeral parlor room. And she tells me all of these stories. She's a wonderful storyteller, like one of the best I've ever had on the podcast. And we conclude the interview and I go home. I edit it. I listen to it once. I listen to it twice. I don't think anything of it. I put it up on Anchor. It goes out at 5 a.m. the next morning. And I wake up at 8 a.m. and have a message from a listener. And she says, holy crap, you got an EVP. And she, and I was like, um, what? And she was like, go to, and she gave me the timestamp. I think it's like at 24, 25 minutes. And I go in and I listen and I turn it all the way up on my headphones. And it was like that reaction you get to something paranormal where like you get a full body chill and you feel yourself about to like get teary eyed because it's, yes. like, it's like genuine. And it was basically, she and I were talking about, I believe the playroom that used to be the playroom for the kids upstairs. And there is a voice that seems to say either come play or go away. And it's very, very clear. It's it's very clear. Yeah. So that was, um, and I got a message from somebody like shortly thereafter that was like, I am so jealous right now. I've been trying for 30 years to catch an EVP and you sit down and hit record and catch one without (laughs) even meaning to. So I was like, yep, I got lucky that one time. I'd rather be lucky than good any day. And on the podcast, no less. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, on the podcast. Yeah, that was pretty, like, I couldn't have planned that if I wanted to. (laughs) So which episode, or how many episodes do you have? Um, I'm about to put out the 80th episode. 80th? Yeah. So, yeah. Do you do weekly? Um, I was doing weekly for a while. I took a break from that during the pandemic because my mental health just like took a nosedive 
and which I'm sure that a lot of people can relate yeah. to during. Yeah, practice. I was going to say welcome to the club. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually um, something that I did want to talk about is I'm getting ready to change the format of the podcast. It's going to be seasonal going forward. So next August, September and October is when the next season of Irioki will be. So I'm very excited about that because it's going to give me time to make a lot higher quality and longer content. Um, it will be very exciting when that time comes around next year. But I was doing weekly. That first year I did weekly every single week. Um, and then I kind of slowed down, went to every other week and then went back to weekly. And then I was like, okay, I think it's time to reformat things. So it's a lot of work. I is. mean, it, yeah. I maybe hopefully we make it sound at least a little polished where it doesn't seem like maybe it is, but you know, that's why Dustin and I don't edit is mm-hmm. I did a podcast <laughs> at the beginning of the po- or at the beginning of the pandemic and I was editing and I was like creating outlines and scripts and, and it, you know, I told Dustin that I think it took me there at the beginning. It took me four hours to put together a one hour podcast yep. and then another hour of editing once it, you know, so, mm-hmm. so six hours worth of work for an yep. hour product. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. it is a lot of t- very time consuming. Mm-hmm. Do you, have do you a- use, go ahead, Dustin. No, you go ahead. Do you use like all the free stuff for the podcast too? Um, do You're you on mean- Anchor, so it's a pre free platform. Do you yes. use like free editing softwares and all yeah, that as well. I, um, I've been using Audacity and GarageBand because I have a PC and a Mac. And those are those are both like free programs that Audacity you can download and GarageBand comes with every Mac. So those are actually my two favorite editing programs. And I've tried the expensive ones like Audition and Reaper and stuff. <clears throat> and I'm just like, no, I'm not a musician. I don't need like all of this stuff. And I don't know what any of it is. So I'm just going <laughs> to like the basics. But I think those are more than adequate for podcasting. And for anybody who wants to get started with it, you don't need expensive equipment. You don't so, need the roadcaster. Exactly. That's what I tell people. I just have it because I'm crazy. So, it's fun. It is it's fun. fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite episode that you've done? I mean, if you Gosh. don't say my episode. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> okay. Okay. No. So <laughs> this one time, Dustin, he came with a Bigfoot <laughs> casting. Um, I don't know, the the Stone Lion Inn was so special because it was one of the first times I went on location somewhere. And it was just, that was just a very magical day. Like it was, it just felt very cool. And Becky was so nice and being inside that house, it was just like really, really, really cool. That one was, um, that was probably one of the most memorable, especially like on location places that I went. Um, but I would say one of the most special episodes that I did was the John Wilkes Booth episode, because um, one of the things about my platform is I'm very transparent about my mental health and I have bipolar disorder type one. I manage it very, very, very well. Um, But I do have wobbles now and then because that's the reality of living with a mood disorder. And I was very transparent about having bipolar disorder from the very beginning. And it was a decision that was really hard for me because I thought, oh my God, if I come out and say this, like, you know, what are people going to think, blah, blah, blah. But right before I started the podcast, on last podcast on the left, Marcus came out as bipolar. Mm. And that was huge for me because he was a creative person living with the disease I have Mm. and he was making it. So that was like a really big deal to me. And I wrote him an email and he wrote back. It was really special. Anyway, so I decided if I can help one person by doing this, 
it's worth it. And that particular episode, Chandler uh, Jordan, who was on that episode, she has bipolar disorder. And that's the reason she messaged me was because I had been transparent about that. And she said it gave her so much hope. And we ended up doing that episode together. And she talked about her struggle with it. And I talked about mine. So that was really, that was probably one of the most meaningful moments that the podcast ever brought me. So I think that one was one of my favorites. Also. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that's one of my favorites. And then I have a multiple of favorites. It's the one with John Ed, I want to. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh, she's so funny. Yeah, I, I eventually want to have her on, oh, on yes. here too. Yeah. She's an author as well. Yes, she is. But, uh, She's hilarious. <laughs> and she's pretty vulgar. Yes. Which is like, my kind of people. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Same. Same. She. Have you rolling. Oh, she will. <clears throat> she will have you rolling. Like, it is. I. She, she cracks me up. And what's funny about it is the way she's on the podcast is exactly how she is when she's talking to me. And she's at my house or she's in my DMs talking to me on text messages. Like, she is. That is 100% John Edda real. Like, it, she is the best. And the, the story she tells of taking her husband to the, uh, what was it? Was it Griffin? Yeah, the cemetery. They went to, um, they went to Griffin mm-hmm. and then they went to like the IOOF cemetery and he thought he got haunted. Yeah. And she was just like, <laughs> this is his weak white boy ways. That's what she said. <laughs> yeah, she's hilarious. Okay. So we kind of started this last podcast uh, because we had a, uh, the DCP haunted trail guy mm-hmm. on, and he asked us what our uh, favorite or what scary movie kind of screwed us up when we were younger. What was yours? Oh, oh, let me think about that. I feel like it was it, like the original it. Like oh, that's a good one. Yeah, because like the tel- the mini series it. That was so terrifying to me. Like, and it was the big bad one that all the kids my age were trying to get their parents to let them see. Yeah. Like we were like, come on, come on, let us rent it. Let us rent it. And finally my parents were like, okay, you can rent it. And I had my little friend from gymnastics over and we were watching it. And in the middle of like VHS number two, where, you know, it's broken into two VHS tapes and we're watching the second VHS tape. We're sitting in the recliner together, like all huddled up with our blanket and the power goes out, like right at this really scary moment in the movie. And we both scream and my mom comes in there and she's like, well, why don't we go outside and you can play on the trampoline until the power comes back on. So we go outside and start playing on the trampoline and then something growls outside and it growls and then there's a flash of light. And you know, like it is like an alien, like whatever, whatever it is, you know, it's the thing you fear most or I don't know. But there's some kind of alien spider thing going on with that. So this alien thing is like coming at us from around the side of the house. And my friend and I run inside. We hide under my bed and I have the phone ready to dial 911 and tell them that the aliens are here. Like they're here to take me and I need them to hurry. And my mom comes in there and grabs it from me and she's like, no, 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 don't call 911. And I'm like, why not? Why wouldn't you want to call 911? There's aliens in the backyard. And it was my dad. And he thought that that was like the funniest joke he ever played on me. Traumatized me. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that's a scary movie. Like that is... That sticks in my mind, and every time I watch it, I think about my dad. So, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, he was a fun dude. That's the kind of dad I try to be. Yeah, you're. You feel free to oh, yeah. take that and adapt it however you want. 
Perfect. <laughs> uh, so besides the stone line in mm-hmm. EVP, mm-hmm. have you had a paranormal experience? Oh, um, yeah, I would say, so I have one paranormal experience that, um, I have a few and some of them I don't talk about like publicly because they're just so personal, but, um, I will say though that there is something else to the world like Mm -hmm. there is I believe like absolutely I don't know what it is and I'm not like I'm definitely a skeptic like I take everything I hear and try to like analyze it and see what else it could be and Mm -hmm. stuff like that but I definitely believe for every 500 stories that are made up there Mm -hmm. are 50 that are true like you know I think it's there are people out there who are telling the truth and I think that um, I think there are things in this world that we just don't understand yet. Mm. So, do you have one that you could? Um, share? I mean, okay, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> when I was at the Grisso Mansion, this was the first time. So, um, so this is kind of a funny story. Um, when I turned thirty, I told my family, you know, don't make a big deal out of it. I'm not going to be depressed. Don't do anything for my thirtieth birthday. So they went out of town and went on a trip. And I was sad and I was mad and I was like, are you serious right now? You really took me seriously and thought I didn't want you to do anything for my birthday and I want you to go out of town. So they go out of town and I'm so depressed on my 30th birthday, like crying into a vat of ice cream. Just like, I am old. My life is over. Like, you know, because 30 is such a milestone that when you get there, you're like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. This is like, life is really passing me by. And anyway, so about a month later, they surprised me with a belated birthday party at the Grisso Mansion for a ghost tour. And I'd been on many, many ghost tours and never really felt anything. And when we were there, I remember being in Mrs. Grisso's bedroom and it's pink. And the place is actually, I believe, closed to the public now, but they used to do ghost tours there. And the whole story of the place, I actually did an episode on it and it's pretty suspicious, like the way that things went down <laughs> with that place. Like it is, I am convinced that her husband, like the first woman he married was a young native girl, like 14 years old. He's like a grown man. And she had a lot of oil money. And then he was also like the coroner and the pharmacist for the county. And then she died mysteriously at like 16 years old mm. of natural causes. <laughs> and he got all her money in her land. So I'm like, Mm, I don't think so. I don't think that's what happened. But anyway, so it's, you know, I feel like it's a place that has a lot of like dark kind of overtones and history to the things that have gone on there. Anyway, we're in uh, the wife's bedroom and I step into this area that's like this little, it's almost like a balcony, like this little alcove, but it's part of the bedroom. Like it's not an actual balcony, but you step into it and you can kind of look out over the front and I very distinctly remember for the first time in my life ever, I could feel someone or something right behind me Mm. and the hair on my neck stood up and I turned and I looked and my cousin was standing right beside me and she looked at the same time we both looked over our shoulder and she was like, do you feel that? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I feel that. And I'm getting chills just thinking about it right now because it was so very much like this presence of, something like it was it was like a person was standing there kind of right behind between us Mm -hmm. just like looking out over the place with us and I will never forget that because it was just so profound like yeah so I I definitely believe that there is 
a lot in the world that we don't understand. Yeah. And I did see a UFO once. So where was the yeah. UFO? Okay, so okay, so I was at a Third Eye Blind concert because that's like one of my favorite bands of all time, and I was with my friend Dustin. I, ironically, my friend Dustin, not this Dustin, but a different Dustin <laughs> that I worked name. with. Yeah, it is. It's a very solid name. My cousin's name is Dustin. I just love Dustin. That's great. <laughs> um, so anyway, we're uh, we're at this concert. Neither of us had anything to drink because I had just had gallbladder surgery, and so I was taking like pain medication and I couldn't drink. And Dustin wasn't drinking um, because he was driving. And everybody else there, though, was drinking. And every time I tell this story, people think that we were drunk and that it didn't really happen. So we're walking out of the concert with all these drunk people. And Dustin, like, elbows me. And he goes, Marty, look. And I look up in the sky. And there's, like, this orange, like, light. And it's not quite circular. It's almost like hamburger. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not a circle and it's not a square or anything other than a cylinder. And it's just hovering in the sky. And he was like, what is that? And I was like, I don't know. And as we're walking and all these people are just like talking to each other, we're the only ones looking at it. And it darts across the sky, like faster than anything. I mean, it's like completely still. And then it darts across the sky and then it just goes down like that. And so we were both just like, what is that? Like we could never explain it. And actually that night, I believe he sent me something that someone else in Oklahoma had seen something. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of, it was weird. Yeah. <laughs> so it was, it was definitely an unidentified uh, aerial phenomena, UAP as they call them now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've seen one, but I've already told it. So I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. But uh, where can people find you? Um, so you can find me on Facebook, Marnie Venge or uh, Erie Oki and Instagram. I'm at, Irioki or at Loch Ness Monster. So it's like Monster Monster. Monster. And on Twitter, I'm at Loch Ness Marn. So uh, yeah, that's the main places you can find me. My website is irioki.com and then marnyvinch.net. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. Um, yeah, thanks, Marn. <laughs> that, is, that is my nickname. Marn, yeah. <laughs> So, on our show, mm-hmm. after we kind of close out and everything, I do a horrible dad joke. Okay. So, and it's Halloween themed because it's spooky season. That, that's why okay, you know, yeah. I had you on this time. Yeah. Why did Dra- Dracula not want to attend the business meeting? Oh, I can't. I can't figure it out. Why? You give up, Melissa? Yeah, I don't think I'm going to get this one. <laughs> <laughs> he was afraid of the stakeholders. Oh, that's good. stakeholders. That's good. Oh, I like that one. I like that. <laughs> All right. Thank uh, you for on. Thanks for having me, you guys. It was a pleasure. Melissa, you want to say bye? Thank you so much. This has been a really fun podcast. I'm glad. Yay. <laughs> Would you like to say your closing? The okay. Spooky? Yeah. Y'all stay spooky. <laughs> right, see, <laughs> see ya. I said it once, say it again How many times I've told ya I know this stuff because I'm from the great state of Oklahoma